Last week, we were looking at the Bodhisattva ideal, and uh, I introduced that as being uh, the ideal of Mahayana Buddhism, as opposed to uh, the ideal of early Buddhism, of Nikaya Buddhism, which I referred to as the Arahant ideal. In terms of uh, Mahayana Buddhism, in terms of the Mahayana, they portrayed or presented uh, the Bodhisattva ideal as a higher and perhaps more complete ideal. And uh, as you may remember, I went through various aspects of, of the life of the Bodhisattva, the key feature being that the spiritual life of the Bodhisattva takes place uh, within the context of the awakening of all beings. So it's not just a path for him or herself, it's a path in which, in becoming awakened, he or she aims to awaken all other beings at the same time. And uh, I'm very pleased that Ratnaguna made that mention of the Sevenfold Puja, because as you, as you might remember, we spoke about the Sevenfold Puja as being one of the key practices, uh, at least of the novice Bodhisattva, it being one of the means by which the Bodhicitta is said to arise, which is the will to awakening, not just ordinary awakening, but the will to awaken all beings at all times and all places. So if you participate in the sevenfold puja this evening, maybe that will, maybe that urge will arise in you if it hasn't done already. Yeah, so one of the things that I was emphasizing about the Bodhisattva ideal was its grandeur and maybe even its impossibility. Um, How could we as individuals hope to help, hope to serve the needs of all beings. Uh, personally, I sometimes find it hard to get out of bed in the morning, um, you know, never mind serving the needs of all beings. It's a very, very tall order. And I think I suggested that this may have been one of the reasons that led to a shift uh, in the understanding of the Bodhisattva away from the idea uh, that it's something that we as individuals pursue and accomplish towards the idea that it's something that is pursued and accomplished on our behalf by cosmic beings known as cosmic bodhisattvas or celestial bodhisattvas. These beings um, out there in the universe are reaching out to all of us to help us along the path. They've accomplished far more than we ever could hope to. And in fact, they've, uh, they've got so much uh, spiritual merit that they can share it with all of us. They can give it away. They've got so much and we will benefit from, uh, from, from that merit. Perhaps through practicing devotion, perhaps through meditation exercises, or through um, some other way of recollecting uh, that figure, uh, we will maybe even enter into their presence and benefit from their, uh, their spiritual insight, their spiritual wisdom. And very briefly, I introduced uh, the figure of Avalokiteshvara, uh, the Lord who looks down, as being one of those cosmic bodhisattvas um, who is said to be um, reaching out to us, reaching down to us to help us towards awakening. Okay, that was last week. This week, uh, we're going to look at Mahayana scriptures or Mahayana texts. And in doing that, I'm hoping to address uh, a few key questions. First of all, we're going to look at what is the Mahayana canon? Um, what texts belong to the Mahayana corpus? 
Secondly, uh, we're going to look at, um, well, what are these scriptures like? What is distinctive about Mahayana scriptures? We're not necessarily going to look at all of them, but we're going to look at some of them, and particularly some of the most distinctive Mahayana scriptures. Next, and this is perhaps a little bit more technical and may not be to everybody's interest, but I'm going to explore the topic of uh, the basis upon which Mahayana Buddhists um, tried to justify or underline uh, the legitimacy of the texts that they uh, studied and were devoted to. Uh, This was, they were clearly controversial in their first centuries and their writers had to find some means of underpinning their legitimacy. So we're going to speak more about that later. And I thought quite a practical question, maybe quite an everyday question would be, uh, why would you read a Mahayana scripture? What will be the value of doing that? Um, It may be that it's obvious to you why you would uh, read a Mahayana scripture. It may be that you've tried and failed, or it may be that you've never even looked at one. But I'm hoping that by the end of this talk, at least I'll have offered some justification, maybe, for looking at some Mahayana texts. Okay, so the first thing to say, really, is that the Mahayana scriptural tradition is absolutely huge. It's vast. Um, I have to concede that I've not counted up exactly how many Mahayana scriptures there are, and there may not even be a clearly defined uh, number, a tightly defined number, but there are certainly hundreds of them, and many of these exist in a number of different versions that developed over time, and many of them exist in many different languages, and as they became translated, they were often changed, added to, or developed in various ways. So even if there are a number of uh, texts that are called the same thing, they aren't necessarily the same text. So there are many, many of these texts. Not only that, but Over time, commentaries uh, were written on these texts and the commentaries began to multiply and multiply and multiply and and still further commentaries upon commentaries and so on. Um, One one edition of text that describes itself as a Mahayana canon uh, runs to about 100 volumes. And these these are not kind of thin volumes. These are kind of encyclopedia-type volumes, huge volumes. So we're talking about a huge corpus of texts here. Probably, in fact, almost certainly nobody has ever read this whole corpus. I mean, it would take perhaps the rest of your lifetime, and obviously you'd have to learn a number of different languages to do it. Some of them haven't even been translated into Western languages yet. Many have, but but some still haven't. So it's a huge corpus of texts. And so in trying to offer some kind of account of Mahayana scriptures, I'm obviously going to be simplifying Uh, quite a diverse range of texts, uh, but I hope to um, pin down a bit more fully which texts I'm referring to so that you don't think, well, obviously I've missed out some important ones. In fact, the the ones that I'm going to be looking at, um, they're generally called, this is, they're called Vipulya Sutras, and Vipulya means extensive. So the Vipulya Sutras are a particular um, division of Mahayana scriptures. 
and they tend to be quite long and they tend to be quite um, to offer quite a unified narrative they tend to be quite coherent I suppose on the whole I'll come back to that a little bit later texts that I won't really be looking at today um, are more the uh, the perfect wisdom texts I'm not really going to talk about those this evening they're they're of a very particular order and they often are quite terse and quite philosophical Uh, but that will be the theme of next week's talk so I'll come back to that then Okay. So I think in order to try and understand the concerns and the style, the content, the form of Mahayana scriptures, we need to take a step back into the Buddhist scriptural tradition and look at the early Buddhist scriptures or the scriptures of what I've been calling Nikaya Buddhism. You may or may not know that uh, Buddhism began as an oral tradition and none of its teachings or texts were written down for some perhaps 300 years, certainly 250, perhaps more years. None of these texts were written down. They're transmitted orally, remembered orally, and in fact they were even edited and uh, organised orally, quite a feat. And over time, um, divergences uh, began to emerge between different uh, sects. So one sect would have a slightly different version perhaps of the, uh, the remembered teachings from another one. Eventually, these texts were written down, but they reflected uh, the oral forms that gave birth to them. So if you read any early Buddhist scriptures, you'll notice that there's a huge amount of repetition, there's a lot of stock phrases and formulae, and there's a lot of lists, because these ways of organising material is very easy to remember. Um, it was a bit like, um, uh, well, I don't want to say painting by numbers, but it was a little bit like you had these building blocks that you assembled together to make your scripture. And so there'd be a stock phrase for describing how somebody became awakened or how, uh, how somebody appeared when the Buddha asked them a question uh, or, or how the Buddha seemed when someone came to see him and so on and so, so on. So there's an awful lot of repetition uh, owing to this oral nature. But besides that, um, the nature of these early texts is, is in some ways, one could say, quite ordinary. Um, You could almost imagine being there, I think. Um, So the Buddha's described um, in often, often not always, but often in fairly ordinary terms. um, He might be described as just having finished his his arms round, or he might be uh, described as just having finished meditating. He might be described as sitting with some friends and so on. There's nothing really exceptional, nothing out of the ordinary, perhaps apart from the Buddha's wisdom, we could say, uh, which is out of the ordinary. But aside from um, occasional um, miracles, um, it's it's a a day-to-day world, it's an ordinary world. Around about the common era, and so this is around about maybe 500 years after the time of the Buddha, um, some new texts, some different texts, uh, started to emerge. And these texts began to show quite a different style from uh, the texts that I've just described. For one thing, they didn't originate orally. 
So they weren't teachings that were given orally and then written down. They were written down first. And being able to write things as opposed to, to having to transmit them orally and remember them enables you, enables one, uh, to write in a very different way. There's not so much a need for stock formulae. And also, there's not so much a need to be brief. You know, if you're having to remember stuff, you want to be as brief, really, as you can. You don't want to remember unnecessary material. You don't want to gild the lily uh, unnecessarily. But these texts that began to emerge didn't have that problem of having to be transmitted orally. And so what that meant was uh, they were longer. That was one of their features. And some of them were very, very long. In fact, over time they tended to accrete more and more material. My teacher, uh, Sangharakshita, has described uh, a Mahayana Sutra as being like a, a planet uh, which has um, satellites in its orbit or even uh, asteroids in its orbit. And over time, its gravitational pull sucks, these, sucks this material in, sucks these um, satellites uh, and asteroids in, and it grows bigger and bigger and bigger. Its mass becomes larger. And this, I think, is quite a good analogy for describing how some of these texts grew over time. And the largest one that I'm aware of um, is a text called uh, the Avatamsaka Sutra. And it's, in some ways, it's like it's a mega text because it actually sucked in whole sutras. There's several other scriptures, whole scriptures, that are in the Avatamsaka Sutra. But that runs to about 2,000 pages uh, in length. So it's a really, really massive text. And that's just one. Mahayana scripture. You know, there are many, many of them. Anyway, these texts began to emerge. Um, and one story is that they became quite popular. Um, it's believed that they became quite popular because they survive. Um, and so it's, it has been assumed that, well, if these texts survive from that period, there must have been quite a lot of people who were reading them, studying them, being devoted to them. More recently, it's become, that, that, that view has become questioned, really. That's, that's been called into question. It now seems much more likely that these texts were actually read by a very small number of people, maybe even a tiny group of people. And this is kind of just my speculation, really, but, but I almost imagine that maybe it could just be a study group, just one study group wrote this scripture and they were the only ones that knew about it. Nobody else. Maybe five or six people. Could have been. Could have been that. Or just maybe a couple of dozen. But if, if there was only a couple of dozen people who knew of this scripture, well, why, why, why did it survive? How come it might even survive until today? I think the obvious explanation is that it was written down. I don't know if any of you are familiar with the poet Emily Dickinson. Uh, but Emily Dickinson is a famous American poet, um, and she, I believe, never wrote, sorry, she never published any of her poetry in her own, uh, in her own lifetime, never published anything, but she did, she did write it down. She wrote quite a lot. And, and after she died, it was published, and over time, its uh, value has been seen more and more, and she's become a celebrated and famous American poet. But actually, in her own day, perhaps just a handful of people uh, were familiar with her poems, maybe just her immediate reading circle. And so some of these scriptures, I suggest, maybe were a little bit like that. 
um, that their importance grew a long time after they were first written. Um, and, and when they were written, they were perhaps only noticed by a very small number of people. Okay, so I mentioned that the, um, the flavour, the nature of these scriptures was quite different. They tended to be longer. Uh, they tended to be more complex. They tended to present a more complex narrative, um, which might weave in um, subplots, weave away from the main plot, come onto a subplot, and then go back to the main narrative again. And... This was not a feature of the early Buddhist scriptures for the reasons that I've already given. Not only did they tend to be quite long, but actually they tended to be quite, uh, or some of them, were quite wordy. Um, Not just in terms of their length, but in terms of their descriptions of things. So something something that might be very ordinary might be described uh, in extraordinary terms. So just thinking of one particular scripture... um, Called, uh, it's called the Lalasavistara Sutra, and it's kind of, it tells the story of the Buddha's life. And there's one particular episode that just pops into my mind, where the, where the Buddha is described walking towards the point where he's going to gain enlightenment. It's called the Bodhimanda, the point of the Buddha's enlightenment. And you kind of think, you might just say, well, he walked there, he sat down, meditated, and he became awakened. But in the Lalatavistara Sutra, this walking, it goes on for ages and ages. And not only that, as, as the Buddha takes each step, you know, the whole universe shakes and beings cheer and so on and so forth. Um, so this, this kind of quite ordinary or maybe seemingly ordinary event uh, is set within this extraordinary visionary narrative. And this is a, a key characteristic of Mahayana Buddhist scriptures, that the narrative is set within a visionary dimension, um, a a dimension of myth, a dimension of symbol. The narrative that we see is not an ordinary narrative. It's not a narrative of, you know, I I went down to the shops and bought myself a packet of crisps. It's a narrative in which beings, trillions of beings appear at the same time from seemingly nowhere to hear the Buddha speak or the Buddha is able to appear in a billion universes at the same time in order to, pre- in order to pre- preach his message. This is what a Mahayana scripture is like. Um, one that I'd like to just perhaps talk about a little bit more to give, give you a more detailed flavour is a scripture called the, it's called the Sukhavati Sutra, which means, Sukhavati means um, happy land, blissful place, something like that. Um, and the Sukhavati Sutra, in fact, there's two of them. There's a, there's a longer one and a shorter one. Um, and this is, um, Sukhavati is, uh, is like an ideal world, or in, in Mahayana Buddhist terms, a pure land or a Buddha field. It's the perfect realm uh, in which one could practice uh, Buddhism and become awakened. So this sutra that I'm talking about, called the Sukhavati Sutra, it records the, the, the apparent life of a bodhisattva. This bodhisattva is called Dharmakara, uh, which I think means something like a light maker or light bringer. Um, and Dharmakara is no ordinary bodhisattva. 
If you remember from last week, one of the uh, stages of the, the Mahayana Buddhist life is to make a vow, uh, a vow to help and uh, liberate all sentient beings. Dharmakara, so inspired is he by a former Buddha, that he decides to make a vow, but no, no ordinary vow. He decides that he is going to create uh, the perfect world. Um, in fact, he's, he's not only going to do that, he's actually going to visit all the perfect worlds, all the Buddha lands that there are, and he's going to take the best from each of those lands to, to make a mega Buddha land, a, a super Buddha land, if you like, the best of all Buddha lands. And once he's done that, he's going to make this land available to all beings. In fact, he's going to help all beings uh, into this land uh, from which they can gain awakening. So this is the kind of uh, mythic narrative, uh, the kind of mythic context uh, that we see in a Mahayana Buddhist scripture. Okay, so imagine then that, that these new texts that are very different in style have begun to emerge. I should probably say at this point, just to kind of fill out the picture, that actually this level of complexity and mythic narrative evolved over a long period of time. And there are, there, there's a corpus of texts that are sometimes called proto-Mahayana scriptures that aren't quite as elaborate, that, that are somewhat more similar to the Nikaya Buddhist text, but they show some features of the Mahayana text too. So they're kind of proto, proto-Mahayana proto Buddhist texts. But anyway, over time, these texts emerge, and reading between the lines, reading some of these texts, it seems clear to me that they didn't necessarily have a universally warm welcome uh, a number of the texts include uh, passages that talk about how terrible it would be if anybody refused to believe this text, or how terrible it would be if anybody insulted this text, or how terrible it would be if anybody insulted someone who upheld the value of this text. And that suggests to me that probably people did um, criticise and maybe call into question uh, the value and legitimacy of these texts. Otherwise, why would it be there? Why, why, why would you need to um, state that anybody who doesn't appreciate your text you know, will burn for a thousand lifetimes or a billion lifetimes in some horrifying hell? So that's what I'd like to suggest uh, was going on, that they weren't necessarily rapturously received. And it seems fairly clear that that, that must have been the case because there appears to be very little evidence, very little archaeological or textual evidence uh, to illustrate or to show that there were many people uh, devoted to Mahayana Buddhism for a long, long time after these scriptures that I'm referring to were written. Even while the scriptures themselves were evolving, even while they were being transmitted to new cultural environments like Central Asia and China, even then they were still seemingly not all that popular. 
in uh, the land of their birth, which was India. So, it, it seems to me then, they needed to find a way, the writers of these scriptures, needed to find a way of underlining the fact that their scriptures were valuable, that their scriptures were worthwhile. Not only that, but actually that their scriptures represented some kind of higher teaching, some kind of more complete version of the Dharma than the Nikaya Buddhist scriptures. Because if they didn't, well, why bother with them? If the Nikaya Buddhist scriptures had everything uh, that was needed, then what is the need for the Mahayana Buddhist scriptures? So another way of putting that would be to say that the Mahayana scriptures needed to uh, justify themselves. They needed to show that they were legitimate. And there are various manoeuvres, there are various uh, moves that Mahayana Buddhist texts uh, make in order to demonstrate their legitimacy. And I'm just going to look at some of those. In fact, I'm going to list a few briefly and then I'm going to go into some of them in more detail. So first of all, the first thing that they did was that they presented themselves as originated from, as being... uh, communicated by the Buddha. So they, were, they, they came from the Buddha. This is, this is how they present themselves. In a moment, I'll explain that it was, a, it was a slightly different conception of the Buddha than the one found in Nikaya Buddhism. But they presented themselves as being authored by the Buddha. Secondly, they used uh, the visionary imagery that I referred to a few moments ago as a rhetorical device emphasising what can be seen above what can be heard. Um, So I I was emphasising how the early Buddhist scriptures were transmitted orally and someone who was regarded as a good monk was someone who had heard much. They'd heard many scriptures. The emphasis was on what could be heard because uh, uh, orally was the means by which wisdom was transmitted. In Mahayana Buddhism, wisdom is transmitted through image. I'll just come back to that in a moment. The third uh, ground upon which Mahayana scriptures affirmed their legitimacy was through the teaching of skillful means. I'll come back to that later. And just a couple of other ones that I'm not actually going to explore so much today, but I'll just mention, mention them now. Some of them claimed that they came from a higher source, the source of enlightenment itself or the source of wisdom itself. They claimed that anyone who was possessed of perfect wisdom, what they said was the same as the Buddha, was equivalent to what the Buddha had said. And because this particular justification relates to the perfect wisdom tradition, I'll come back to that next week. Yeah, the other, the other grounds really upon which um, Mahayana scriptures uh, asserted their legitimacy was simply through saying it over and over, saying how great these scriptures were, how if anybody were to devote themselves to these scriptures, then all kinds of benefits would come to them. Uh, and I will say a bit about that at the end, actually. Okay, so just to go through one or two of these areas in a bit more detail then. First of all, uh, the texts present themselves as teachings coming from the Buddha. 
But as I've spoken about in previous talks, in Mahayana Buddhism, the Buddha is no ordinary being, he is a trans-historical being. He stands outside of time, he stands outside of space, and he can manifest at all times and everywhere in many different forms uh, with many different names. So while we might read a Mahayana scriptures, scripture and it may say uh, the Buddha said so-and-so, it's not the Buddha of the early Buddhist scriptures, it's a super Buddha, it's, a, it's an enlarged Buddha, a, uh, a cosmic Buddha. This is most clearly brought out in a scripture called the Lotus Sutra, um, where I'll need to set the scene a little bit for this. So the Buddha is giving a teaching, the teaching of the Lotus Sutra. And just by the way, it never really emerges, it never really becomes clear what this teaching is. Uh, But there are many, many parables and stories along the way, but we never really find out uh, what actually the teaching is that the Buddha is giving in the Lotus Sutra. But anyway, at at one stage, uh, the Buddha summons trillions and billions and however many you could think of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, and they all appear instantly, uh, just in a moment, and they surround the Buddha. And everyone, particularly the ordinary monks, they're amazed by this. They, they, they really don't understand where they've come from or what they're doing or who they even are. And the Buddha says, all these beings, and it includes Buddhas as well, not just Bodhisattvas, all these, all these Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, I've taught all these Buddhas and Bodhisattvas over countless lifetimes in countless universes. I've taught each one of them and they're here now as my disciples. And a number of those present are really confused by this because they believe that the Buddha just lived for 80 years and then he died. And so how could he have taught all these beings? How could he have taught all these these beings in all these different universes, how is that possible? And so the Buddha explains that he's been awakened for a seemingly infinite, infinitely long time and he has appeared in many different worlds over that infinite period of time to share his wisdom, to share his dharma with all beings. Sometimes this, this figure um, that appears in the Lotus Sutra is referred to as the Eternal Buddha. Um, I think in technical terms... He's not eternal, but he has been enlightened for as far back as you could possibly remember. Um, So he may as well be eternal. So this is the kind of Buddha that we encounter in Mahayana Buddhist texts. A Buddha that has been awakened seemingly since time began. Yeah, and this Buddha... Um, can be encountered in many different ways. He may not just be encountered uh, walking down the street or, 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 or giving a teaching to some monks. He might appear in another way. He might appear in, in, in a dream uh, or within visionary meditation. And in the context of that, uh, he may share, he may give one of his teachings. In fact, it's been suggested by uh, at least one scholar that the origins of Mahayana scriptures may well have been dreams or may well have been elevated meditational states that then the, uh, the meditator or the dreamer then wrote down as being 
a very, very valuable experience. And then over time, this consolidated and became more like the text that we can see today. So the Mahayana Buddha can be encountered in many different ways, including through the pages of a Mahayana Buddhist scripture. And I think I might come back to that later. So the second way that Mahayana scriptures underpin their legitimacy was through, is through the use of visionary imagery. I've spoken quite a bit about this already, uh, but I think that I'd like to, um, to demonstrate it with an example. The example that I'd like to use is a scripture called the, uh, the Gandavyuha scripture. Write that up. The Gandavyuha scripture uh, records the journey towards awakening of a bodhisattva called Sudhana. And Sudhana happens to hear uh, a Dharma talk. He happens to hear a Dharma talk by a bodhisattva, actually, a bodhisattva called Manjushri. And he's so inspired by this talk. And that he thinks, I want to devote my life, I want to devote all of my energies to the Mahayana life. This is what I want to pursue. Tell me what to do. What is the next step? How can I give rise to the bodhicitta? How can I help all beings to gain awakening? And Manjushri says, well, what you'll need to do is go and speak to, go and speak to this bodhisattva who lives a certain distance away. And so Sudhana goes and he meets this Bodhisattva. And this begins um, a kind of a, a visionary pilgrimage, we could say, uh, in which Sudhana encounters 53 uh, spiritual benefactors. And he goes to each of them and they tell him something of their spiritual wisdom. And he, he, he asks each one, how should I live? How should I practice as a, as a Bodhisattva? So when he arrives, they tell him something. And it, it's usually some elaborate description of some very elevated meditation state, um, describing uh, huge expansive space, uh, very rich colours, encounters with, with many different kinds of beings. And then at the end they'll say, but actually if you really want to know, you need to go on and meet this next person. And so this is how this scripture proceeds. Uh, Sudhana encounters 53 of these uh, spiritual benefactors and each one of them uh, gives him some of their experience and sends him on to the next one. Uh, but the, uh, the scripture culminates in a very particular and peculiar uh, scene or vision. Um, and it, it's a tower. Um, it's known as Virochana's Tower. Maybe you could say it's like a stupa if you're familiar with that. Um, and this tower, it immediately becomes clear is no ordinary tower. I'd like to read a passage to you from the sutra to describe what this tower is like. So my tra- sorry, Sudhana approaches the tower and he asks if he can go in and he's invited in and, and this is what he sees. He saw the tower immensely vast and wide, hundreds of thousands of leagues wide, as measureless as the sky, as vast as all of space, adorned with countless attributes, countless canopies, banners, pennants, 
jewels, garlands of pearls and gems, moons and half-moons, multicoloured streamers, jewel nets, gold nets, strings of jewels, jewels on golden threads, sweetly ringing bells and nets of chimes, flowers showering, celestial garlands and streamers, censers giving off fragrant perfumes, showers of gold dust, networks of upper chambers, round windows, arches, turrets, mirrors, jewel figurines of women, jewel chips, pillars, clouds of precious clothes, jewel trees, jewel railings, jeweled pathways, jeweled awnings, various arrays of the floor chambers of jewels, jeweled promenades, rows of golden banana trees, statues made of all kinds of jewels, images of enlightening beings, singing birds, jeweled lotuses, lotus ponds, jewel stairways, ground of masses of various jewels, radiant gems, arrays of all kinds of jewels. I think you get the idea. <laughs> and that's just a very, very short passage. You imagine that going on for pages and pages. But importantly, then Sudana, seeing this miraculous manifestation of the inconceivable realm of the great tower containing the adornments of Virochina, was flooded with joy and bliss. His mind was cleared of all conceptions and freed from all obstructions. Stripped of all delusion, he became clairvoyant without distortion and could hear all sounds with unimpeded mindfulness. He was freed from all scattering of attention and his intellect followed the unobstructed eye of liberation. With physical tranquility, seeing all objects without hindrance, by the power of production everywhere, he bowed in all directions with his whole body. So that's just a brief passage from the Gandavyuha Sutra to illustrate something of the visionary imagery that we find in Mahayana scriptures. And it really does layer it on. You know, it goes on and on, page after page. Um, many people become very, very impatient with this and find it quite tedious and even boring. And I think that if one reads it as ordinary literature, uh, it is very boring. It, it's just a lot of repetition you know, jeweled this, jeweled that, jeweled nets, whatever. Um, But if one reads it and perhaps even listens to it in a different sort of way, maybe in a meditative environment, perhaps even on a special festival day, as we've done sometimes, you can almost allow the words and the images to just wash over you. And over time, the images, they begin to soak in um, and they begin to fill you up. And, uh, and you begin to inhabit this visionary universe. You begin to, to be there. You begin to participate in it. Um, so it's not, just, um, it's not just a meaningless list. It becomes a means of participating in this visionary universe. And as I, as I mentioned a moment ago, the fact that we can uh, participate and that we can see this visionary universe marks us out as something special. Um, at the very beginning of the Gandavyuha Sutra that I referred to a moment ago, uh, it's made clear that not everybody can see the visions that are being shown in the beginning of the Sutra. Those with only limited wisdom, they can't see it. They can't see all the cosmic bodhisattvas everywhere. They can hear what the Buddha is saying, but they, they're not party to the, uh, the, the visionary feast. 
that the bodhisattvas are. And so in this way, a kind of hierarchy is being shown between those who can simply hear and those who can see. Um, So if we're able to see this visionary uh, dimension, if we're able to participate in it, then that marks us out as belonging to something higher, something of the Mahayana. At least that's what these texts appear to be saying. Okay. So I just want to move on now and talk about um, another ground upon which uh, Mahayana scriptures uh, demonstrated or justified the fact that they were legitimate. And this is through the teaching of uh, skillful means or upaya koshalya, um, sometimes translated as expedient means. Um, okay. So in order to introduce this, I think um, I'll start with a, with a question, because this is a question that is found uh, in the Lotus Sutra. So the question is, is if the Bodhisattva ideal is so good, if it's so great, why hasn't it been heard about before? Why, do, why is this a new thing that's emerging in these new texts? Why don't the Nikaya Buddhist scriptures... Uh, emphasize the Bodhisattva ideal because as we've already learned they emphasize the Arahant ideal the idea that we'll be freed from the round of birth and death and uh, be completely liberated Uh, we won't be reborn uh, well certainly in the human realm again in fact we don't even know what happens to an Arahant it's said to be one of the undeclared questions but anyway yeah why the need for this extra path surely the Buddha you know, what was good enough for the Buddha, what was good enough for the Buddha's teachings is good enough for us, good enough for everybody. And you can see this is actually quite a tricky problem, really, because if one's presenting an ideal that's not found in the early Buddhist scriptures, it could almost be read to, to be saying, uh, well, actually, the Buddha's teachings weren't that great. They're OK. They weren't that great. Uh, we got something better, actually better than what the Buddha came up with. And you could see that wouldn't go down too well. Um, with most Buddhists, they'd think, well, that's rather arrogant, um, dismissing the Buddha like that. So Mahayana texts come up with a, a different strategy. Um, and the one that uh, the Lotus Sutra comes up with can be explained by means of a parable. So I'll tell you the parable, and hopefully, if you don't understand it fully already, then I'll explain it a little bit. So this parable is, the, is called the parable of the magic city. I'm sure some of you know it already. And this is found in chapter 7 of the Lotus Sutra. Suppose there is a stretch of bad road, 500 yojanas long, steep and difficult, wild and deserted, with no inhabitants around, a truly fearful place. And suppose there are a number of people who want to pass over this road so they can reach a place where there are treasures. They have a leader of comprehensive wisdom and keen understanding who is thoroughly acquainted with this steep road, knows the layout of its passes and defiles and is prepared to guide the group of people and go with them over this difficult terrain. The group he is leading after going part way on the road become disheartened and say to the leader, we're utterly exhausted and fearful as well. We cannot go any further. Since there is still such a long distance ahead, 
we would like now to turn around and go back. The leader, a man of many expedients, thinks to himself, what a pity that they should abandon the many rare treasures they are seeking and want to turn and go back. Having had this thought, he resorts to the power of expedient means and, when they have gone 300 yojanas along the steep road, conjures up a city. He says to the group, don't be afraid. You must not turn back, for now here is a great city where you can stop, rest and do just as you please. If you enter this city, you will be completely at ease and tranquil. Then later, if you, if you feel you can go on to the place where the treasure is, you can leave the city. At that time, the members of the group, being utterly exhausted, are overjoyed in mind, exclaiming, Now we can escape from this dreadful road and find ease and tranquillity. The people in the group thereupon press forward and enter the city, where, feeling that they have been saved from their difficulties, they have a sense of complete ease and tranquillity. At that time, the leader, knowing that the people have become rested and no longer fearful or weary, wipes out the phantom city and says to the group, You must go now. The place where the treasure is, is close by. That great city of a while ago was a mere phantom that I conjured up so that you could rest. So that's the parable of the magic city or the phantom city. And I'm, I imagine you're probably thinking, yeah, what's that got to do with anything that I've said so far? So the phantom city, in terms of um, the Mahayana understanding, is the Arahant ideal. So it's a seemingly intermediate step. It's a seemingly realisable ideal. If beings were presented in the first instance with the Bodhisattva ideal, they might find it so overwhelming and it's seemingly so distant that they might lose heart and turn back and so not make the effort to, uh, to move towards it. So, according to the Lotus Sutra, instead the Buddha came up with an intermediate step uh, of the Arahant ideal. Um, this is the magic city that one moves towards, uh, although obviously when one gets there, or rather as one approaches it, it vanishes uh, because there is only one ideal, according to Mahayana Buddhism, and that's the ideal of the Bodhisattva. So, this is... So the Buddha is said to have taught uh, the idea of the Arahant ideal as a skillful means, as a helpful device uh, to help beings who might otherwise struggle to move forward. When beings had moved a certain way along the path, they are then ready, or they could then be ready, to hear actually the true message, the full message, the complete message, we could say, uh, which is the Bodhisattva ideal as presented in the Lotus Sutra and many other places. So this is, this is skillful means. The Buddha comes up with a, a ruse, a device, uh, by which he uh, he's able to draw beings forward towards what is regarded as a superior goal. And in more kind of institutional terms or, or more kind of polemical terms, the teaching of skillful means enables the writers of Mahayana texts to justify themselves, to, to um, legitimise themselves, while without seeming to completely reject uh, the earlier Buddhist tradition. Although you can probably imagine that the idea, that the ideal that you've been pursuing so far is actually a phantom city, would itself probably have 
been quite insulting, I imagine, to quite a lot of people. Um, we don't know that for sure, but um, I would suggest that there was a degree of unhappiness at that suggestion. Okay, so I've spoken a bit about um, how Mahayana scriptures uh, legitimise themselves. I've spoken about the fact that they saw themselves as being uh, authored by the Buddha, but not the Buddha of the early Buddhist scriptures, uh, more like a trans-historical Buddha, a cosmic Buddha. And in fact, different scriptures, there are many different Buddhas that appear in them. They're not always uh, our Buddha, who's, who's known as Shakyamuni Buddha. There's many other Buddhas too. Secondly, um, I looked at how the visionary imagery of Mahayana scriptures uh, was one of the means by which uh, they demonstrated their legitimacy, emphasising what's seen above what's heard. And then finally, I looked briefly at the teaching of skillful means, particularly how it is used to underpin the legitimacy of, of Mahayana texts. Skillful means is quite a complex teaching, and we could have a whole talk simply on that topic. Uh, but I was just identifying one feature of that teaching that I wanted to emphasise uh, for the purposes of this evening. So having done that, the question arises, why read a Mahayana scripture? Uh, what will be the value of reading one? Um, I've already underlined that they can be very, very repetitive, uh, even tediously so. Some of them are hundreds, if not thousands of pages long, you know, life's quite short. There are many things to do. Uh, why, you know, waste your time on reading uh, a narrative that appears to go round and round in circles and then completely lose its main uh, main direction and go on a completely different direction, which is some of the, the way that some of the Mahayana scriptures unfold. You know, w- what will be the value of reading that? Um, seemingly, many of them have very little doctrinal content. Um, Certainly the doctrinal content could sometimes be summarised in a couple of pages and yet the scripture might be a thousand pages. So why not, you know, just read The Eternal Legacy, which is um, uh, a book written by uh, my teacher Sangharachita, which contains summaries of all these texts. Just read the summary and then that's all you need because you'll have got the teaching. Uh, You'll have got the main message then. Um, Well, um, I think I've, I've said really something about why I think they're worth reading, but I think that I'd like to underline that perhaps by using an analogy. Uh, not long ago, I was in London and I went to the Tate Modern. I, in fact, I go to the Tate Modern every time I go to London. I don't know why I always end up there. But I went there and there was an exhibition by um, Mark Rothko on at the time. I don't know if any of you know the painter Rothko's work. Uh, but what they had set up was some very, very large Rothko canvases. And Rothko's paintings uh, tend to be, uh, well, more or less one colour or or two colours. There's not an awful lot going on. Um, In fact, you might just think, well, somebody's just painted a wall, really. Uh, And and so what? I mean, I was painting my kitchen earlier today. You know, surely that's just as good as Rothko. Um, But one of the the critics writing about um, Rothko's painting uh, said that what what Rothko's paintings do is they, they create what they were describing as an immersive environment. In other words, as you stand in front of a Rothko painting, or maybe even if you're surrounded by a number of them, you become engulfed 
by the paintings or you become immersed in uh, the colour that, that, that comes out of the painting. And when I was there in the Tate Modern, I very much had this experience of walking in. It was almost like walking into a mood. Um, that, that's how I felt. And the, the particular ones that were striking me are, are, are some of the, one, the kind of maroon-type paintings, which maybe some of you have seen. They're quite, quite subdued colours and they're quite contemplative. But you walk in there and you suddenly feel like you're in this, this slightly different space um, that, that somehow starts to open out for you. And even though seemingly there's nothing happening in the paintings... When you look at them, you start to have a sense of being kind of drawn into them, maybe, and even through them, into a different space, a different emotional space, maybe. I'm very fond of the metaphor of portals, and I think that one could think of these paintings as being portals into, well, maybe Rothko's imagination, maybe an expanded uh, version of our own imagination. I don't know exactly, but certainly some elevated state some more more vibrant more more alive condition so this is Rothko so I think this is a really good analogy for a Mahayana Buddhist scripture if we read a Mahayana scripture and that's really attend to it and really allow ourselves to enter into it then we don't only read we participate the scripture is not simply a text it's a living drama it's a visionary drama that we enter into and participate in. We are there. We are constructing what the Mahayana scripture, scripture is. We're bringing it alive, or it's becoming alive. It's becoming uh, activated, we could say, through our encounter with it, through our reading of it. And the more alive we are to this, the greater effect that it can have. The images begin to soak in. Uh, the, uh, the narrative begins to affect us. Our emotions become engaged. And we feel ourselves transported into, into a different state, an expanded state that perhaps offers some kind of analogy, not saying it's the same as, but some kind of analogy for an awakened state of mind. So that's, you know, that's why I would say, or that's one of the reasons why I'd say it's worth reading a Mahayana scripture. Just to kind of say a little bit more about that, Another, another way of approaching that would be to say that um, the scripture, uh, through our participation of it, sorry, through our participation in it, through our reading of it, unveils what's called a, um, a samadhi. Samadhi is often translated as uh, meditation. Um, but in a lot of Mahayana scriptures, a samadhi is a particular... I'll call it a vision world uh, that a bodhisattva uh, lives in or, or um, dwells in. And uh, these vision worlds are what are unveiled through a number of Mahayana scriptures. So through reading the scripture, the scripture becomes the portal into the vision world. It becomes the portal into the samadhi, which is a state of heightened consciousness, a state of perhaps awakening, at least um, a visionary analogy of the state of awakening. Okay, so I just want to finish off now. Um, so I've, I've tried to offer some kind of account, some kind of introduction to um, Mahayana Buddhist scriptures. 
As I explained at the beginning, I'm, I've not really offered an overview of, of the whole corpus of Mahayana scriptures, but I've been focusing very much on a particular strand of Mahayana scriptures, and that is those particularly that are concerned with um, quite extensive visual imagery uh, and mythic narrative. And I've briefly introduced you to a couple of those, uh, the Lotus Sutra, notably, and uh, the Gandavira Sutra, another one. Um, so I'm hoping that, you know, through this brief introduction, your interest has been uh, engaged, has, has been sharpened, and that you may go away yourself and, and take up a Mahayana scripture and participate in it yourself. Thank you. <laughs>